I had spent years writing what became known as the Biden crime bill. The Biden crime bill. The Biden crime bill. Democrats right now, especially African-Americans, have really looked back on the 1994 crime bill um, not very fondly. Hillary Clinton herself has come out against it, even though her husband signed it into law. Well, the author of that crime bill was Joe Biden. The Biden crime bill. The Biden crime bill. Biden's 1994 crime bill, while implementing sweeping gun control, also helped fuel mass incarceration with financial incentives to keep people behind bars. My name is Ben Burgess, and this is Give Them an Argument, episode 13. Uh, in just a moment, I'm going to be speaking to Matthew Kushbaum Chrisman from Chapo Trap House. Uh, a little later, I'm going to be talking to Glenn Greenwald, uh, formerly of The Intercept. And then, uh, of course, there's David Griscom for Outlaws and Revolutionaries. Uh, but as you uh, as you may know, we record the show on Saturday afternoons live for patrons. Then it goes through some editing. Um, and uh, the nice edited version comes out on YouTube on Monday night. Uh, and out as a podcast a little bit before then. So as we're recording this, it is just a few hours after the election was finally called uh, for Joe Biden. Uh, I think that uh, The Onion, which has been a little hit or miss lately, uh, nailed it with their headline, uh, Jubilation uh, at uh, Trump's loss sours as news spreads that Biden won. Uh, But uh, in any case... Uh, to uh, to talk about all of that, to uh, to break it down, uh, I am now joined by Matt Chrisman. How are you doing today, Matt? And you are muted. I've never I don't do it this way, so I'm not used to it. Hello, <laughs> Matt. Um, so um, obviously, uh, I'm sure you're very excited because because uh, Joe Biden is president and uh, he's going to do all kinds of great things, which which we know since he says he we're will. All very, we're all very, very pleased. On, on his campaign website. And the way this works is that if somebody says they'll do something on the campaign website, they um, they have to do it. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's law. That's in the Constitution. Okay, cool. Awesome. All right. So we'll get the public option and card check. Um, and, uh, and all that stuff. So I'm really looking forward to all of that. Um, yeah. So, uh, I, I've been listening to, uh, to, to some of your commentary on this, uh, from, uh, from the grill stream and, uh, and, and from, uh, from Chapo. Uh, and it seems, um, like not optimistic, like, uh, like you, you <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, I, I get this weird sense sometimes lately when I'm when I'm listening to this that that I'm I'm listening to something like that's sort of like this like very dark transcendental wisdom like uh, like like maybe like at the um, uh, what the um, uh, James Woods would be giving you at the end of Videodrome you know something uh, something a little bit uh, a yeah little don't bit. be afraid to let your body die folks <laughs> fair enough. Uh, which, which I believe is actually the uh, the Biden uh, campaign slogan. Might as well be. I mean, long live the old flesh in his case. Right. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so as as part of that that kind of breakdown, uh, you know, you, you've been talking about how American elections typically work in a ways that maybe go beyond like even just the sort of specific uh, dynamics of of this race, which. Um, 
you know, which, which is uh, that, well, you know, I won't put it quite the way you do because I'm a gentleman of impeccable manners, but uh, at, uh, that, you know, that there's a, there's this kind of the culture war distinction that elections are increasingly fought over has to do uh, with uh, the, the difference between like seeing the trajectory of, of things right now. I mean, very dramatically right now because of coronavirus and everything else, but more generally, you know, the neoliberal hellscape that we live in uh, and saying, you know, uh, don't, um, you know, don't be too obnoxious about it. Uh, and uh, and seeing all of that uh, and uh, and saying yeah we have to accept it like both sides agree on that uh, but uh, but you know whatever like have some fun with it don't be a buzzkill don't have fun with what like so so uh, uh, so when you um, all right let, let me back up let me back up a little bit right try to uh, try to see if I can clarify the thought right so uh, so so thinking about like the sort of culture war in, uh, in American elections, it's, it seems like, uh, the, the distinction, uh, between people who like Trump and people who wanted to, who wanted Trump out, uh, has like very, very little to do with policy at this point. Yeah, no, it has nothing to do with policy. There's no more, there's no material base to American politics. I mean, obviously that's been a while a case for a long time. This is not new. This election did not make that case. In my opinion, the election has made has finally given us, at least me, uh, an evidentiary basis to to not be able to in any way imagine that there's material politics in this country in any way. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's obvious enough why maybe like think that this election, the general election, you know, wouldn't be really about material politics in any meaningful way. Nobody thinks that anything's much uh, anything much is going to change. Probably, uh, probably most people who are excited about voting for Biden don't actually think that he's going to do any of the the positive reforms that he says he will, because most people don't believe that politics can change anything. Yes, but then I guess maybe the larger question uh, is uh, whether there's a whether there's like a larger way out of it, right? Because if if you're a socialist. Uh, and you have any kind of hope about the near to medium term future, it has to be based on thinking that there's something that we could potentially do to like depolarize uh, the like depolarize politics from cultural lines and repolarize them on, on class lines, convince people to, to vote to support a program that would actually benefit their material interests. That's the, that's the Bernie would have won case. But it sounds like uh, like you're no longer optimistic about that either. There will be no convincing people. There's no there's no pitching to people because the people you're pitching to, uh, they are processing your pitch through the through the, the lens of this two party system through the parties, not as you as a college educated person who has some idea of what the Democratic and Republican parties have traditionally stood for is going to be thinking. They're going to be dealing with the parties as they exist in the current moment, which is as pure vessels for a battle about a cult, a, a bundle of cultural values that are that are learned in college that are either accepted or rejected by those who go to college and then are either accepted or rejected by those who uh, become politically conscious to the point that they want to vote due to their uh, exposure to these values in the ambient culture, which is produced exclusively by and for people who go to college and then decide whether to adhere to them or reject them. And it has no basis in a material reality. No one who pitches material politics will have that material pitch 
be able to be heard above the cultural din. Any hope is going to come outside of the party structure, a way out, not done by anyone in a position to exercise political influence, because you are in, you are going to be uh, doing that within a closed bubble, an epistemic cultural bubble where whatever you're talking about, its material basis will be immediately instinctively discarded by the people you're talking to because of the bone deep awareness made by not through ideology, but through lived experience as people like to talk about of this country, not having a meaningful uh, political, uh, uh, not having there be such a thing as a political uh, power that can change any of the major uh, arcs of, of misery in American life. So, so would you say that it have to come out of the come out of the two party structure? I mean, maybe I'm I'm just being too like plotted and literalistic about this, but uh, what could what, what could that mean? Do we even know right now what that could mean? I have no idea what it would mean. Yeah, that, that, that's why people are saying I'm blackpilled now because I'm saying I'm sorry. If you're watching my streams or you're looking at the internet or whatever, you are in the bubble, and there's nothing you can do. Now, that doesn't mean we're doomed. That doesn't mean there's nothing you might be able to do, but you're not going to be able to figure it out by looking into the, the, uh, the, the, this uh, crystal ball that we've convinced ourselves is the reality that, that is really just a place where we all go to amuse ourselves. It'll ha- if, if you find a, a thing to do, if you find a, a step forward to take, it is not going to come from a program. It's not going to come from a candidate. It's not going to come from any uh, aesthetically uh, uh, projected uh, campaign. It's going to be a, a, a response to conditions in your life, and it is going to be a collaboration with people in your life. Yeah. Or, and that doesn't mean it's going to happen. Sure. But it right. is but, the but only viable be. path. Right. So, uh, I, I mean, maybe this is just, maybe what I'm asking you to do here is, is just a performative contradiction because because you just said that we can't uh, figure it out. Uh, and like in this kind of way. Right. But, uh, but, but I, I guess I am curious uh, about whether like what the gap is maybe between you're saying what you're saying now and what other people might be saying, or like maybe stuff I heard you saying like as recently as, I don't know, like a month ago or something like that. Right. Uh, which, which is okay. So uh, you know, the Bernie thing, you know, didn't happen. The, the calculation was that we could do we could do things the other way around from from what would normally make sense that instead of having an organized working class and a movement and having an electoral politics that comes out of that we could sort of jump start in a weird way in uh, in the opposite direction uh, and that didn't happen uh, and and that was kind of a fluke that there was even the opportunity for that to maybe almost happen uh, so any sort of electoral prospects um, now would would be much more low low level uh and 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 i i guess i'm i'm curious i'm curious about like whether you what you're saying now is is basically still that except with like um with a little bit more pessimism mixed in about like what um like our ability to to even discover it or coordinate it outside of of like the most local things or or whether um or whether you think that we're just not going to um, like, we just kind of have to wait for something basic to change. And we just don't even know what that would be yet. I mean, we're going to obviously have to wait for something to change just because this is clearly a stalemate and this is an inert political 
But this is an inert populace politically in a way that will not be directed, that, that cannot be directed. But that doesn't mean that the that because that doesn't mean that there's no way because the things will significantly change politically. They will have to because conditions will continue to deteriorate in this country and people's lives will on a day to day basis be worse. And that in a country that has an illusion of a democratic process will lead people into politics. The question is how they will do it. If they continue to be funneled into the two party system and into elections as they exist now, there will you will eventually see the thing that people are talking about, which is the Republican Party being the broadly working class party. But it will be a world where working class has no connection to experience, no connection to actual relationship to means of production or even income or any of those uh, signifiers. It will be your acceptance or rejectance or rejection of a bundle of, uh, of social mores, which people at the shit end of the uh, stick when it comes to uh, distribution in this country are going to be less and less interested in investing in uh meaning with okay so so this so this gets down the distinction i was trying to be too cute about it earlier whatever i I think the joke flopped but the uh but uh what you know what you're talking about as this sort of like culture war positions you know you characterized as don't be an asshole and don't be a pussy right you know like so uh don't be an asshole meaning uh that uh that you should um you know that that you should invest in in some some of these cultural mores at least you know like don't be incredibly racist you know things like that uh and uh and don't be a pussy meaning like don't be um you know don't try to don't try to regulate my behavior uh you know if if we are on a sinking ship like we can um you know we can at least we can at least enjoy ourselves on this stinking ship in the sense that we're not having our behavior regulated this way where we're at least, you know, maybe, you know, we're not wearing masks, you know, during, during COVID, you know, we, we get to yeah. we get to pretend at least that none of this is happening. Right. We're having some fun with it uh, on that level. In fact, this was um, in some ways that was, that was Trump's closing argument in the election. He said uh, that if you vote for the Democrats, you're voting for not having college graduation parties and weddings. And, you know, he lists off a bunch of things, you know, that that was kind of the pitch that I'm offering pretend that this isn't happening and continue to enjoy your life, which, um, which wasn't entirely unsuccessful because obviously uh, this is not like, you know, we now know that Biden won, but I mean, this is not the blowout that it was, it was supposed to be. Uh, Trump came amazingly close to winning. Yeah. And he gained in every demographic except white males. Uh, and I think what we're seeing is, is that the, Trump is abnormal pitch worked in that it told suburban Republicans who vote Republican mostly out of class self-consciousness, but also because due to the fact that they're aware of themselves as at the top of an economic hierarchy, they're not really interested in, in any kind of uh, political party that, that demands that they, you know, surrender that position or in the absence of surrendering it, feel bad about it, which is all liberals really are asking of wealthy people is to feel bad about being rich, not to not be rich anymore. And they make the absolutely um, logical decision to say, why would I, if you're not, if I'm going to be rich either way, why wouldn't I be uh, enjoy being rich? But they also absorb those college mores about things like, you know, uh, uh, about norms and about the value of like a free press and electoral, uh, 
electoral integrity and the idea that something like COVID should be dealt with by the federal government with a certain degree of, uh, of seriousness. And they saw that and they voted for Trump, but only are voted for Biden, but only for Biden. They voted down ticket for Republicans because they had no investment in any project other than rebuking the personal uh, figure of, of Trump as this, this uncouth being and couthness is the, was the, was the revolving question. And the same, and as those suburban Republicans said, no, thank you. A lot of working class people who I haven't invested those things with meaning saw him and said, look, we're going to have Corona anyway. We're going to have economic crisis anyway. No one's getting a check. No one's getting anything. Why don't I just not, why do I have to wear a mask? Why do I have to feel bad about not wearing a mask? And it's not just, why can I have fun? It's, it's textured. It's because everyone is alienated and miserable to some degree or another, even if they might be economically relatively well off because nobody feels themselves in that position. They only feel themselves relatively and they feel therefore relative deprivation, even if they're absolutely uh, privileged. So everyone is feeling some degree of unhappiness about the way that their life is not giving them what they wanted to. And tr the Trump pitch, the, 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 Demo the Republican pitch, the asshole pitch is, is uh, you're pissed. It, if you're pissed, feel pissed, and, and here's people to be pissed at. And uh, if you want to have a good time while you're pissed, here's something to do. Here, go to a party, go get some chicken wings, and why do you have to wear a damn mask? Yeah, uh, I, and again, like, like I think that, that uh, I, I, I think I'm, I'm not, um, even if on, on some level, uh, you know, I, I'm maybe I'm less uh, – I've I've made the yeah, I've made the video drone breakthrough uh, through less. I'm I'm still trying to hold on to uh, to some uh, some idea that there is something you know that that we can do to uh, to coordinate some kind of left strategy that that might work or at least might put us in in a better position uh, if uh, if something does change out of our control that that changes conditions. Uh, but but there is there is something that that does have an ugly ring of truth to about this. I mean, like well. While I was listening to the stream where you were talking about this, I was I was walking the dog past, um, uh, you know, out in the middle of nowhere in Michigan, and uh, and you know, and and passing a yard sign uh, that was like "Vote Trump, Make Liberals Cry," uh, and uh, and and I remember seeing another one earlier. Uh, that was like the most like cloying sort of uh, you know that yard sign with. Uh, with the list of all the liberal talking points, like one on top of each other, on top of each other, you know, that uh, belief science. Uh, yeah. Right. You know, love is love. Welcome immigrants, all that stuff. Yeah. 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 Which, which as, as Thomas Frank points out in his new, his new book, he talks about those signs in there um, conspicuously doesn't include anything that, that would have anything at all to do with, um, you know, like there's like, there's nothing about, you know, somehow like raising the minimum wage or having health care or anything like that doesn't make it onto the list. But even the stuff that does make it onto the list, they don't mean anything about, they don't intend to do anything about. I, I, to me, the, 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 the line of the election was, uh, and this was supposed to be the thing that was going to make it a landslide before COVID was the kids in cages. And Trump's response was you built the cages. And so many liberals were baffled by that. They were like, I don't get it. How can he say that? Uh, if, they're, if he's saying they're bad, but he likes them, then why is it Biden's fault? What he is saying is cages come with the territory of being the United States at this point in time. And if they're going to be there, are we going to cry about them and pretend that we care? Or are we just going to accept that some things are necessary? And at the end of the day, both parties have a policy, have, are part of an, a, a greater agenda that necessitates 
uh, uh, savage immigration enforcement. And that will happen no matter what. So what the hell is the point of crying about it? And that is, I think if you, if you don't believe the liberal fairy tale, the propaganda tale that, well, we're trying our best and we're going to get there someday. And yes, it was unfortunate, but you know, it's worse under him and we'll get, we'll be better under Biden. If you don't buy that implicitly because you have not absorbed and metabolized a system of values that, that you mostly have encountered because it helps you in the job market more than any wellspring of emotional connection to them as like felt and lived values, mostly just etiquette that is necessary to make it in a professional milieu, then you don't fucking care. And why should you? And that is the answer that none of them have. They say they should, and people should. And look at the response. Wow, we live in a racist country. These people should care more. And that's all they have. They are more black-pilled than anyone. Liberals are more black-pilled than anyone because the response to this election has been, wow, I guess it's a worse country than I thought it was. With no, no, nothing, nothing even remotely uh, 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 conceivable to change the direction of that other than to further demonstrate their own superiority to their countrymen as everything just continues to get worse. And that is not going to be a winning electoral message. Yeah, well, and, and actually, it's, it's become even more of a parody of it. I remember uh, earlier this week, like, I don't know, maybe on Wednesday or Thursday, there was an op-ed in the New York Times uh, responding to a lot of the statistics you just mentioned about, uh, about Trump. Uh, Charles Blow, maybe, I don't know, one of those people, uh, responding to a lot of the statistics you just mentioned about Trump actually increasing his vote share among all these different uh, categories of voters, you know, that there were more black voters who voted for Trump, you know, still a small minority, of course, but more of them, uh, more women who voted for Trump, uh, you know, more gay people who voted for Trump. And literally, like, the op-ed is 90% just, just rattling off those statistics. And the last, like, couple paragraphs is, wow, racism and the patriarchy are, like, really powerful. And, and, and they, they, they pull in, you know, these people who are, who are, uh, who are victims of them. And, and gosh, doesn't that make you think? So, so the, the response immediately was to default to, um, you know, oh, like the strategy is, is to call people bigots and the strategy is even to call people who um, uh, is even to call black voters and gay voters and, you know, all, the, all of these people bigots, uh, which, which does say some, which does go to the stalemate point, right? Because uh, if, I mean, it's hard to imagine the person who thought this would work, right? That uh, the scoldings will continue until the election results, uh, it, you know, improve. I mean, I don't know that anybody really thinks that that will work, but that doesn't really seem like the point, right? Like it's, it's not that it's some attempt to get people to, to switch tribes and, um, and, and vote for Democrats. Uh, it's, it's just, it's just kind of an attempt to, to signal, you know, allegiance to, to the values, you know, to the values of the tribe and to make you feel better uh, about the, um, about the choices you've made. Uh, which, uh, you know, I mean, whatever. I mean, this is not new information. You know, it's the same thing in 2016 uh, when, you know, Hillary was calling Trump voters deplorables during the election, after the election, making a big deal about saying that people in well-educated, prosperous areas voted for her, uh, that if, you're, if your goal was to try to peel off whoever, whoever could be peeled off uh, from, from, the, from the Trump voters, that obviously, uh, that obviously wouldn't work. But there's another question about what, if anything, 
woodwork right now. And, and I, and I know, you know, I, I think your position is, is just that, um, that we don't know, right. That, that they have, uh, that, uh, that maybe nothing right now, because, uh, in order to get some sort of big left breakthrough, you know, the, the conditions around us would just have to change uh, in some sort of way that we can't see, see right, you know, going right now, but in maybe just the last few minutes that we have together, you know, I, I wonder about this because it does seem, and maybe this is just, you know, maybe this is just some part of my psyche trying to, you know, trying to cling to whatever shards of, of hope that, that there are pathetically, uh, but it but it does seem like even in the results of the election there there is some evidence that there are people who could have been peeled off by for example a, a Bernie candidacy like the fact that uh, like the fact that the fifteen dollar minimum wage won in Florida by more than Trump did. Well, the problem there is that uh, people don't vote for discrete issues; they vote for candidates for political parties, and the Democratic Party will never be a party of the aspirations of working people. We, yes, Bernie would have done better, but Bernie didn't get the nomination. He was structurally incapable of getting the nomination, as we saw, because the people he, 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 he pitched himself to in the primary were Democratic voters, which means that they have metabolized the capitalist realist notion that there is no change that is possible, which meant his entire material appeal basically went in one year and out the other, uh, and that the best we can do is to, is to hold on to these cultural values and that therefore and beat Trump. And so therefore he was a non-starter for a majority of democratic primary voters. He had his chunk. He had his ceiling, which was lower, higher than everybody's or is the floor. His floor support was higher than everybody's, but his ceiling was also uh, very, very locked in by age and demographics. Uh, he needed to get in people who weren't paying attention and had not metabolized what the democratic party means in 2020. And he didn't get them. Now, Considering how much money they spent on ads, I think that there could have been a, a world where they didn't spend a dime on advertising and put all that money into outreach and maybe they're able to do something. But I think the ship has sailed now. And I think that, that with that, now there's no figure in the, la, uh, uh, in the Democratic Party who can bring together issues that will in any way overcome the deep belief among the politically conscious people who you would need to appeal to to get a nomination uh, that think change is really possible uh, or could cut through the intensely neurotic web of, of cultural signifiers that have to be kowtowed to before you can even get a hearing as a Democratic uh, candidate anymore. So if there's going to be anything, it will not. And yes, there is like a there is a of course, there's a, a dream in the human breast for something better in this country. But it will not it will not be embodied by a Democratic politician. So if it's not embodied, you know, by by a Democratic politician and this, the structural barriers to um, to certainly third party electoralism are, um, I mean, that that just that just seems like even more deeply uh, is something that's not going to happen. Uh, then then what are we left with? Like uh, like 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 just um, you know some because uh, because it it seemed like uh, you know when these sort of uh, you know Bernie and Corbyn moments uh, were happening in the U.S. and the U.K. and you know whatever we can argue about all the reasons why uh, those those were being back. I mean, I tend to think that if the that uh, if the Democratic establishment had been as dumb as the Republican establishment was in 2016, 
you know, when they never like did anything like consolidate behind Marco Rubio or somebody that Bernie might have squeaked through in, uh, in 2020. Uh, but, uh, but whatever, you know, they did learn their lesson and that didn't happen. Uh, and, and now, as you say, right, it's, it's hard to imagine there being a Bernie like figure having that possibility again. Uh, and the third party thing seems like even more of a pipe dream, well, I mean, when those moments were happening in the first place, it seemed like the way forward for the left was, okay, social democracy is obviously insufficient. You have to overcome capitalism, but you can at least start with social democracy and go somewhere for that. Uh, and that seemed like something that could happen electorally. And if, if that is, in your view, something that's like basically off the table for the foreseeable future, uh, does, does that mean that, that we need to kind of hope for something to happen like non-electorally that we I think what it's going to be is if there's any hope it's in people organizing as workers I mean that's obviously kind of you say duh because that's supposed to be the Marxist idea and it still is it's it's it hasn't gone anywhere uh it's just that what that has meant to people has been you know in this deracinated and, and depoliticized country trying to build something up through the institutions that people are familiar with like through media figures, through the Democratic Party, uh, but I, I think that, I think that the full cultural assimilation that has happened in terms of the way that people view politics conventionally means that that anything that's going to be positive, anything that's going to be progressive, is going to be be generated by people who do the do the math at their place of business, communicate to each other the, the condition of their labor. And find uh, find self uh, find a sense of autonomy and and uh, and control over their lives through through uh, the application of a group uh, 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 pressure on employment, and that because this is America, that very well might end up having a a electoral expression, but it's not going to be a third party just being created out of the blue by a bunch of. Uh, you know, ex-Democrats or media figures or think tankers or podcasters or magazine writers. Uh, and it's not going to, it's, it would be just an expression of an, of an, of an emergent and, and, uh, and an emergent movement that is seeking to find a way to express itself uh, like in a national level. Okay. I mean, I, I guess, like, I, I want to, you know, I want to be- believe that. I'm actually not sure, not sure if I do, uh, if I do disagree with that. I mean, I, I think that the, you know, I mean, the part that makes sense to me is saying that uh, that maybe for the future of the left, electoral politics is downstream of uh, of workplace organizing. Yeah. Uh, and and that 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 just that just has to be the, the lesson that like okay we can talk about like maybe like the Bernie you know thing would have gone differently if this had happened or if that had happened or the other thing had happened, but the basic reason that it was easy easy to defeat as it was is is just that like it was an honest reflection of uh, of the strength um, of, of of the weakness of of the left uh, as as it exists right now and the way that it's easiest to imagine. Uh, a stronger left, uh, you know, emerging in the future would be something that was like supervened on, on more workplace militancy 
uh, and and a revitalized or maybe even different kind of kind of labor movement. I mean, I tend to think that the at least initial electoral expression of that would still, um, you know, be within the Democratic Party at least, you know, uh, just just because the two party system is so incredibly resilient in the United States, it's hard to imagine how you get another electorally viable party unless by some sort of weird thing happening where like one of the existing parties collapses like the Whigs did uh, in uh, in the 19th century. But uh, but at, at that point, I guess you know, I guess we're just trading predictions. But uh, but meanwhile, uh, I'm going to let you go. But just just summing up. Um, so everything is awesome. Uh, we should be very happy uh, about about the everything that's happened this year. That the uh, uh, that uh, that Joe Biden isn't perfect, but he could be moved to the left. Uh, and we'll the get Cheeto is is gone, and that's what matters. Okay, that's what matters. Fair enough. All right, thanks, Matt. Always really Thank appreciate you. it. Uh, long live the new flesh. Indeed. Bye bye. Don't be bye. afraid. I am now joined uh, a little bit earlier in the show than usual uh, by the uh, the great David Griscom, who's obviously here to uh, do Outlaws and Revolutionaries. Uh, but uh, before uh, before we do that, now um, now that we do finally uh, definitively know uh, <laughs> that um, that it's it's Joe, uh, it's uh, that uh, that Biden won the election. Um, We've already gotten some signs of how exciting that administration is going to be, like Sidney McCain being ad- added to the like transition task force. Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> so, uh, any uh, uh, any quick uh, any quick hot takes you feel like sharing, especially ones that might make me feel better than what we just heard from Matt Crisman? <laughs> yeah, man. You know, it's good that Trump's done. I mean, I just think it's really important that we remember that this has been a really horrific period where a lot of people who definitely existed in this country, but were really catapulted into positions of power and the spotlight. It's sort of good to, you know, to put an L in their column. But, you know, I mean, as, as we both know, it's like got a big fight ahead of us. Things are looking really weak um, for that movement. I think I'm going to be doing a lot more. So I think I'm going to be doing something coming out with Jackman soon, specific kind of breaking down. Uh, what happened in Texas, uh, especially because they're the bleeding of the Latino vote for, for Biden, I think is a very worrying sign uh, going forward. And also, I hope, um, prove some of these pundits wrong, uh, that like demographics in themselves are destiny and that you don't have to do politics anymore because, you know, the makeup of the population is going to change, which is just proven to be completely wrong. You got to go out there, you got to fight for votes and you have to, you know, from our perspective, especially do that by, you know, building politics that excites people and will actually fundamentally change their lives, which just Joe Biden was not putting that on offer for sure. No, no, for sure. For sure. Not. I mean, um, you know, the, the thing that I keep going back to just, just the single data point, uh, glad that you're writing the, the Texas thing. I'm actually, uh, uh, was actually asked to do something for, for Jack, but about Michigan. So, so maybe they're feeling the, the itch to, uh, get some uh <laughs> to get some non-coastal perspectives but uh <laughs> um 
But the thing that I keep going back to is uh, is Florida uh, that there that the fifteen dollar minimum wage resolution uh, won uh, by a bunch more than Trump did, mm-hmm. uh, and of course uh, it's it's true. Um, you know, we're just kind of darkly joking around with Chrisman about this earlier that if you look at uh, if you look at Biden's you know campaign website, it says he's for that. And uh, and I guess it came up a little bit at the second debate, the one where people could finish sentences. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he wasn't campaigning on it, right? A, because he wasn't campaigning. And B, because uh, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't the pitch of, of the campaign. The pitch of the campaign was, um, was I'm going to be like a normal civilized person and, and we'll go back mm-hmm. to when things weren't quite so bad, uh, which, you know, seems to have, have just barely worked. Uh, yeah. Is what you can give it. And, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to, to add to this, too, because one thing that is so annoying about this conversation is, you know, especially if you engage on Twitter, which, you know, you really at a certain point just need to learn that it's not a good place to have <laughs> conversations. But, um, you know, somebody will, like, send you, like, Joe Biden's, like, plan, like, somewhere deep down on his website. You know, he was talking about a Green New Deal or, like, about, you know, $15 minimum wage or whatever. And it's like, you know, it really matters how you campaign. Um, because it's like, that's what you're going to be beholden to. And those are the ideas that people are expecting of you. Anyone can write like a huge policy book of all these, you know, things that they want to do when they're in power. But if you're not campaigning on it, then one, I don't think that you're probably going to do it. Um, and two, um, you know, there is just very, very little um, chance that, you know, you're going to follow through with it because that wasn't the mandate that you were elected to. And like what we're seeing with Biden is like, okay, well, Biden's mandate essentially is like, I'm not Trump, (laughs) which is not necessarily a good one from the, you know, perspective people who are fighting for progressive policies. Uh, You know, I think it's going to be a really weird and especially given the state of politics, I think it's going to be a really weird next couple of years. My like hot, hot take, strategy take is that we should actually just completely rewrite the narrative and uh, make the argument that we elected Joe Biden uh, to uh, get us a big ass stimulus check and to do that kind of immediate stuff and, you know, basically make that idea really popular and start to like plan in people's heads so that we can have a pretty robust campaign uh, to get that early on in the administration. Cause you know, people are really suffering and they need that. And that's a short term movement that I think would, you know, has a potential of working and, uh, you know, would actually really help a lot of people's lives. Yeah. No, that makes, that makes sense to me. Uh, and yeah, you put that stuff on the campaign website, you say it at the debate because that way, um, you're, you know, you're on record about it's that, that, that shuts up the left or pacifies, you know, pacifies the left a little bit. Um, but of course you don't also don't create much of an expectation because uh, cause you didn't uh, you didn't campaign on it uh, and you also don't really get the benefits right like it, it maybe pacifies your left flank uh, but it doesn't excite anybody out, outside of that right you know people Biden um, you know by, since Biden wasn't really campaigning on any of these things uh, mm-hmm. you know I mean my big take on you know because like I've heard a lot of stuff lately about oh well look, uh, there was this really high turnout election and it was, you know, um, uh, and it, it went to Biden, but it wasn't a blowout. And doesn't this really disprove the idea that the left has been pushing, that there's this huge pool of untapped, you know, left-wing voters. And what I'd always say to that is that that's not what anybody was saying, or if it was, this certainly shouldn't have been. Uh, the, the idea wasn't that there's this big pool of untapped voters who had like, well-worked-out left-wing policy preferences. Uh, the idea was that 
most normal people don't think and talk about politics all the time. They have political impulses, they have political reactions to things. And depending on what sort of pitch they're being given, what kind of narrative they're being offered, they could be pulled in various directions. Uh, and so, and I, I think again, that Florida thing is a real, is a real sign of that. Cause who knows, right? Like, but, but somebody who voted for, voted for Trump and also voted for that, if the election had really been about that, right, they might've voted for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly if the election had been about healthcare, right. you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, I know I was, I was, uh, you know, I always go back to this and at a certain point I've got to stop talking about this or I'm going to start sounding like one of those, um, like Japanese special forces guy who's like hiding out in some cave at the end of the war and like still thinks world war two is going on in the late 1960s. But, uh, but Bernie Sanders was thoroughly associated in the public mind with one issue, Medicare for all. And if he had been the candidate, then the election would have been to a great extent, a referendum on that issue. And it would have been a referendum playing out against an unprecedented health crisis that was accompanied by millions and millions of people losing their private health insurance. And I guess I can't swear to know how that would have gone, but God, I would have loved to find out. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, I'm pretty bullish on this one, actually, that uh, I think, um, you know, Bernie Sanders style campaign would have done fairly well, actually, um, this week. Just given exactly what you're saying, what he was foregrounding is exactly the direct antidote to a lot of the problems that we're seeing, you know, most notably a massive health crisis. Um, and the solution to that is providing a robust healthcare system um, to people who a lot of people don't have access to it. It's just like, you know, I mean, again, it's just like, I think it's fine by the way. And I think you and I both agree on this. It's like, hell yeah, man, you know, have a drink with your friends, be happy, yeah, right. celebrate the end of Trump. I mean, he's a pig and uh, you know, we should be happy about that. But I guess like I've, I've felt ever since, uh, you know, Wednesday that it looked pretty set what was going to happen. Um, so I've already sort of had my moment with that and, and starting to, you know, start saying, okay, well now we have a, you know, Congress that's in shambles and a political party that was barely able to beat, a, in my opinion, just a very beatable candidate. Um, you know, so we have a lot of work ahead of us and it's going to be hard to figure out where to go, uh, without having that kind of unifying movement that we have with the Bernie Sanders campaign. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because, cause this means that we actually have to, uh, to figure it out by ourselves, right. You know, we're not going to, it's just going to be, um, uh, swept along in, uh, in the force of events, you know, which is, which is what really happened to great extent with both Bernie campaigns, you know, that there were people who, who I never would have expected to, uh, to support that, um, mm-hmm. who either because I thought they were like, um, you know, milquetoast liberals or because I thought they were like ultra leftists who would never, you know, support anything that was happening in Democratic primary, uh, who were, um, who, who did because it was just so like anybody with a certain set of political instincts was going to be on that train, you know, once it was going. Um, but, you know, it's very, uh, you know, it's very, un- it seems very unlikely, certainly in the next couple of years that, that anything is going to happen that's going to have quite that gravitational pull mm-hmm. of the Bernie Sanders campaign, which means that we're in the position that we actually have to like talk and think about it and like figure out what the best way forward uh, is, um, is for the left. Um, I, I think, you know, something we've talked about before, and I'm sure we'll talk about much more on the show and elsewhere um, is that a big part of that discussion is going to have to be talking about what we can actually do to, to build a, 
a larger and more militant and more effective uh, labor movement because, you know, I don't think, like I was kind of talking about with, with Matt at the end there, I, I, I just don't see a way forward uh, that doesn't go through some version of that. I agree. And like, the thing is too, I just, I can't state this enough. And it's been something I've been harping on ever since Bernie dropped out. You need institutions like that. Um, not only because of one, like their economic power and, you know, obviously the way that that orients people, but you need to be part of movements that are thinking together. Like there's this kind of fixation that you're just going to be able to sit in your room and, you know, get it all figured out. Like, no, which like the reason we talk about things like class consciousness is one to get people to you know participate in politics in a way that they're thinking about like large groups of people, um, but but two because when you're thinking as like a group or as a community that sort of changes one your perspective and then two your actions, and that's been the only possible um, possibility possible road forward for like left politics. That's why I'm always pointing out you know the only time we've had anything resembling like a viable third party in this country uh, you know was after the you know the populist movement with the people's party and how did that start it started because farmers realized they were being screwed over by merchants and they're being screwed over by the finance system in the country and they got together to figure out and to talk about what was going on and then they they also start realizing like, oh man there's a hell of a lot more wrong with the system than just like the merchants screwing us over and that is what it was able to develop into you know probably like the closest thing that we've had to like a you know really viable uh, third party and obviously uh, two you know ended up developing into like the socialist party right that happened because people were working together on the ground and we're coming up with like pretty radical solutions, you know, things like cooperatives, um, things like, you know, buying goods in bulk, uh, you know, for the community as like, a, you know, in a trust kind of system, like those kind of solutions are like what we hundred percent need. And I don't have the answers as to like what kind of new forms will happen, but we just can't replay the same thing over and over. We have to start figuring out places and systems and communities or whatever that we can start, you know, coming together and, getting these solutions and the labor movement is obviously um, you know, the most obvious of those. I also think like tenant associations and things like that mm -hmm. too, tenant unions, I mean um, are also going to be really important going forward. Yeah. No, makes sense to me. Um, yeah. I was actually sitting here thinking about how this is uh, in, in content. I think a lot of this does dovetail with what Crispin was saying, but uh, it sounds so much more hopeful when you say it. So I like that. <laughs> uh, meanwhile though, let's see, got some, uh, uh, Japanese whiskey uh, nice. Nika, that uh, um, Eric Kelly, video editor, friend of the show, um, uh, and filmographer, documentarian, uh, sent me. Uh, so I am ready. Uh, Beautiful. Well, I I guess I can't uh, with my background show everybody, but I got a really nice uh, bottle of whiskey for my friend Ben for my birthday, which I enjoyed a bit of uh, this week, but. Uh, Gonna have a little bit of that now too. It's good stuff. Thanks so much for this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, glad you liked it. So, <laughs> so yeah, who are we talking about today? Well, we got to talk about Jerry Jeff Walker, who uh, died, uh, I believe, on my on my birthday, at least the night before, um, October twenty fourth. Um, and you know, I had wanted to talk to him before, but then Billy Joe Shaver passed, and just figured instead of doing them both in the same segment, you know, you got to give them both their their time. Man, where to start with Jerry Jeff Walker? He was, you know, an absolute legend, um, a real, you know, a lot of the guys we talk about are like the real deal. Like they they live their music, um, 
for both good and bad. Uh, Jerry Jeff Walker was a hundred percent one of these one of these people. Um, he's probably he's probably most well known for the song Mr. Bojangles, which we'll get into um, in a little bit. But like that was his like you know big big song, and he did a few other um, covers of of other people's music that you know did well, but. He's more of an institution um, than, you know, sort of like a chart topper. And so he was born actually in uh, New York state and he, he just, uh, you know, sort of lived his life, uh, you know, wandering around like a real kind of old school folk musician tramp. You know, there's definitely, you know, he's in the Woody Guthrie line, uh, for example, um, he, you know, thumbed his way all the way down the country, you know, just, you know, hitchhiking, uh, ended up in Florida for a little bit, uh, New Orleans got to New York city when he was in like the Greenwich, uh, village, uh, scene, the folk scene here, um, for a while, but eventually he makes his way uh, to Austin, Texas. And it's important to note that he really was influential in like turning Austin into the outlaw country destination that it's now known for. He was one of the early people there who sort of built the scene. Um, I believe he actually was even in Austin before Willie Nelson uh, came back to Texas from Nashville. Uh, so, you know, he was, he, he lived the, you know, a, a full life in that sense. Um, you know, but classic country stuff, short temper, got lots of fights, trouble all the time, a lot of drinking, <laughs> things of that nature. Um, which I think is a good as segue as any to talk about the song, Mr. Bojangles, man. Um, it honestly, it's probably one of my favorite songs ever. Uh, I've loved that song since the first time I heard it as a kid, I listened to it, um, in many different stages of my life. It honestly, not to be too uh, sentimental, it, Honestly, always, if it, if it hits you in the right mood, uh, it'll bring a tear to your eye. Um, and it's worth noting, we definitely listen to the song, but it's just, it's a really sweet story um, that is loosely based on a true story where he was caught up in a drunk tank in New Orleans. And, uh, you know, he's, you know, you just have to spend the night there. And he gets talking to this, this guy who basically, you know, was just like a street performer and a dancer. And he'd just try to, you know, get a living um, off of that. And he was, you know, saying how he was always in, uh, in jail um, because of, you know, his, his drinking and, you know, obviously his activities. And you have to remember just, I mean, the police are bad now, but just back then they would yeah, just right. like throw you in jail. You know what I mean? You just look the wrong way. They just put you in jail. Um but anyways, they're sitting there and they're talking and he's just was, you know, a bright, like a happy guy, despite all of this. And he starts talking about, you know, how he's basically been homeless for a really long time. And uh, he had a dog that he misses uh, desperately and the dog, uh, you know, passed away. Um, but anyways, you know, so this is a sad story. Um, but the reason the song I think is just so beautiful is that, you know, this guy is basically telling, uh, Jerry Jeff Walker in the song, you know, it's a really sad story about his life. And then just gets up in the middle of it and starts dancing like the most beautiful, you know, happy dance you could ever imagine. And it's just, it's just a, a great song, I think, because it's like finding a bit of beauty in a really ugly and cruel world. And, uh, it's really sweet for that. Um, I highly suggest people, you know, check it out. And, you know, that's how he became famous. Uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Um, you know, would do that song. Um, 
uh, you know, he did like, I believe on the tonight show. Right. So this had like mainstream appeal, but it's also, you know, a kind of song that, you know, people who are really living that kind of hard up life, it, it really speaks to them too. And like, that's an incredible part of Jerry Jeff Walker. Um, but yeah, let me think. Cause I got some good stories, but like he it's important to note too, that like, so he was, this kind of like country music godfather, almost a lot of ways. He helped a lot of guys out. Um, Guy Clark, for example, uh, Jerry Jeff Walker sang his song, um, you know, LA freeway, which is uh, Guy, Guy Clark's like breakout song. And, you know, Jerry Jeff Walker says something to, to the effect of Guy Clark is like, you know, this is going to be a really great song. And, you know, you're on the verge of, you know, breaking out, you know, so he was always like uplifting other people and really bringing them into the limelight and fame because he was such a trusted voice. Um, and was so respected in the country music world. Um, funnily enough, uh, I'm, I am a stan of Jimmy Buffett and he might yeah. be somebody, I mean, I don't, I don't <laughs> listen to Jimmy Buffett regularly, but man, Mark Ritaville is a fun song, you know, it's just whatever it's fun music. Um, but Jimmy Buffett also claims that, uh, Jerry Jeff Walker, basically made his career by introducing him to Key West, um, which which is a pretty funny um, acknowledgement there. Uh, Also, you know, I I lived in, I lived in South Florida for six and a half years. So I maybe have mixed feelings, but I I gotcha. Hey man, you know, the parrot head, I've always been joking when I turn 30, I'm going to be a full-time parrot head. Uh, So I got two years before, before I'm living that lifestyle. Um, you know, Ray, Ray Wiley Hubbard, too, is another guy who Jerry Jeff uh, Walker, you know, got moving. Um, you know, they called the kind of country music that uh, that Jerry Jeff Walker, you know, sort of was the trailblazer for like progressive country or like cosmic cow, uh, cosmic cowboy country. Yeah. Which I love so much, you know, and that's like that's like the outlaw scene in Austin and in Texas in general, what they were doing out there. Um. So, I mean, it's just incredible stuff. You know, definitely check out songs like Drift and Way of Life, The Wheel, Hill Country Rain. Uh, that's why I play. Um, yeah, we should do, it, we should do um, we should put together a Spotify playlist of the uh, of of songs that have been mentioned in these segments, and at least make it available to patrons. Uh, that's a great idea for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Mississippi are on, on uh, my mind too. Also one I think you'll like a lot, Ben, um, which I don't think he wrote, but he has a great version of it uh, called I Feel Like Hank Williams Tonight, yes. um, where he basically talks about, you know, I play I play, uh, I play classical music when it's raining, uh, but tonight I, I feel like Hank Williams. It's just, it's just a fun song all the way through. Um, but let me just, a couple of quick stories because they're, they're fun as hell. Uh, you know, well, one, it should be noted too, sorry, uh, not to g- go too oh. far. It's like, I like what one thing about Jerry Jeff Walker too, is like, he's such a, a Texan in a lot of ways, even though he wasn't from there. Um, and I think he really, you know, not to go on too much of a Texas rant, uh, rant but I, I love, uh, um, I like people like that. And I like that about Texas that you can sort of come there and make it your home. Um, but I'll just tell this real quick, sort of in closing. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he was constantly getting in fights and there's a lot of stories about him getting roughed up by like groups of people. And, uh, um, but he, there's a story about him and Willie Nelson, who was his good friend. And, uh, you know, Willie Nelson's a pretty nice guy, I think, you know, in, in appearance and I think in truth too. Um, but apparently one night Jerry Jeff Walker was hanging out with him and a few other people and he'd been drinking a bit bunch and he kept on picking up trigger 
uh, Willie Nelson's guitar. And everybody who knows anything about Willie Nelson, he loves that goddamn guitar. You know, he's been fixing it up for years. And he kept on playing with it. And Willie's like, hey, you know, put put that down. And uh, Jerry Jeff Walker just refuses. Um, he's like, no, I'm serious. Like, really put it down. And the story goes that Jerry Jeff Walker basically just continued to ignore him. Uh, so Willie Nelson stands up and punches him right in the mouth. <laughs> and it's just like, you have to be a very kind, a certain kind of character to get Willie Nelson, you know, who's, you know, always chill, uh, kind of mad. But uh, yeah, anyways, you know, Jerry Jeff Walker made some really beautiful music. He's a touching man and everything I've heard about him, uh, despite his, oh, wait. Very briefly, but uh, yeah, another really good one is Jimmy Carter uh, invited him to the White House. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, because Jimmy Carter was a big fan. Uh, so Jerry Jeff Walker shows up and he's waiting for Jim. He's waiting for Jimmy. Jimmy is the president. So, like, something came up. And uh, after like 15, 20 minutes or whatever, Jerry Jeff Walker just storms out and he's so pissed that, you know, he wasted he, his time was wasted. And he says, Well, Jimmy Carter, don't go to bars and I don't go to the White House anymore. <laughs> But despite that propensity for sort of blowups, he seems to be a really kind person. And from my friends and, and family, people I've been talking to in Austin, I never had the uh, luxury of getting to meet him or see him play. But everyone who I've talked to has actually has told me that, you know, he's a really just kind and, and a good man through and through. Um, and, you know, well, he'll be sorely missed, but he made such a big impact in both uh, the culture and uh, country music in general. All right. Thanks so much, uh, David. All right, man. Talk to you later. All right, talk soon. Now joined uh, by uh, by Glenn Greenwald, um, was uh, running a few minutes late, but really happy to have you. Um, I, I've been reading your stuff for a uh, very very long time. There was a there's a point uh, I think in um, you know during the uh, during the Obama era, you know when when I wasn't very politically active, but I think my main political activity was. Uh, uh, reading Glenn Greenwald articles in Salon and using them as cheat sheets for arguing with my liberal friends at the bar about drones and civil liberties. Uh, so, uh, so very good to see you. Yeah, it's very nice of you to say. It makes me feel a little bit old, but I'll take it. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so, uh, since uh, so since then, uh, you uh, post uh, post Salon. Uh, you uh, you were at the uh, the Guardian. Uh, and uh, and after uh, after the Guardian, uh, you had um, you helped to found uh, the the Intercept, a, a publication uh, that you uh, that you just left. So uh, so can you tell us uh, a little bit about why you started the Intercept in the first place, and and then what happened uh, such that uh, such that you ended up leaving? Sure. So I think a lot of it has to do with how I started my career in writing versus the way more traditional journalists did. And I think this was what explained a lot of the confusion on the part of other journalists as well about what happened. 
I didn't go to Columbia Journalism School. I didn't get a job at the New York Times in some entry-level position. I never wanted to do any of that. I just kind of started a blog in 2005, largely because there were things I wanted to say that I felt like weren't being said. At the time, I was a lawyer, and I was really interested in executive power theories and abuse of civil liberties by the, on the part of the, Obama, uh, the Bush administration in, in the war on terror. And so when I started my blog, the way it would work is, you know, it was a free platform and I would just kind of open a post and write what I wanted to say and didn't care who I was pleasing or angering. I just wrote exactly what I felt. And that's why it became so gratifying to me and also why it, it, it began to grow. And so this model of being able to write freely without editorial intervention, without people censoring you was fundamental to how I began writing. And so when I went to Salon, when I went to The Guardian, when they offered me jobs, the condition um, for my going was that I would continue to have the same right, not just to publish without an editor, but to post publicly to the internet without even um, an editor being needed to do that. And they revamped their system to let me to do it. So in 2013, in the middle of the Sunday reporting, when I started The Intercept, I did it in part to guarantee to other journalists that same kind of editorial freedom and journalistic independence that I had enjoyed all those years because I believed and still do that preserving the right of journalists to speak freely in their own voice, not to be homogenized or flattened by editors is something that's necessary to make journalism vibrant again and interesting and honest. And so, you know, that was part of what The Intercept concept and vision was and and also to always be adversarial to intelligence agencies and government agencies and those who wield power and so obviously you know i feel like it's gotten off track some in those broader senses in terms of those bigger values but as you know i made clear when i left um i wanted to publish an article they tried to not just edit it, but prevent me from publishing it without major alterations that I didn't agree with. And so having my freedom of expression constrained or curtailed that way uh, was just entirely unacceptable. I obviously didn't create my own media outlet to impose upon myself restrictions that I never had previously had. Hold on, you're muted, Glenn. Yeah, I just did that because I have a dog who's barking, so I'm going gonna... to... Oh, okay. Uh, fair enough. Actually, it's, it's, uh, it's making me a little bit nostalgic as uh, the... Uh, one of the last times, I don't know. Um, uh, one of the times last year, I was I was at the uh, I was a guest on the Michael Brooks show in studio. I would do a weekly call-in segment, but like only every once in a while, you know, I'd, I'd go in studio. And uh, and one of the last few times I did that, uh, he he interviewed you at the uh, at the beginning, and and I remember uh, I remember sitting there on the couch and, and hearing all the dogs in the background. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so uh, so this is a. Um, this is an important point, right, for, for anybody who's, who's kind of following this, because very quickly after, uh, after you announced that, that you're leaving uh, The Intercept, uh, this, this sort of party line response that formed like right away was, oh, uh, look at Glenn Greenwald whining about censorship when really, um, you know, he's just talking about editing, all journalists get edited, you know, what are you, what are you talking about, right? And, uh, and I think that it's it's important to make maybe a couple distinctions here. I mean, one, uh, I do think on the larger issue when you when you think about issues about about free speech and not just free speech in the narrow sense, but like why we value free speech, the free flow of information, the free exchange of ideas. Uh, sometimes I'm a little disturbed when I see leftists and progressives uh, starting to sound like right wing libertarians on this topic. Like, uh, uh, you know, it, it doesn't so. Um, 
you know, what, what some newspaper does, what Twitter does. None of these have anything to do with free speech. Free speech is only about what governments do. Uh, and, and then the other issue is that context matters, right? Because, because I, I think that some of this was cynical, but some people probably saw some of those emails exchanged. They thought, okay, well, I've, I've been asked to, to alter articles, you know, as much as this, uh, what's the big deal? Uh, and, and I think that, I think that what I'm, I'm hearing you saying, and it's maybe worth like circling and underlining a couple of times, uh, is that if, you know, it might not have been a big deal if this was something that was just the well-established relationship that you had uh, with, with the editorial team uh, at The Intercept, that, that they made judgment calls about the content uh, of, of articles, that they... Uh, uh, that uh, that they they decided whether they thought that something was was a worthwhile story or not. They decided uh, you know they decided whether or not they thought your interpretation of the story was fair. And in this case, maybe you disagree with some of the calls, but you know, no big deal. But it wasn't right. You said like you know, you specifically started this publication to not have that relationship, and uh, you were, and for many years, right, for several years. Uh, this was this was basically respected. I mean, you were not, uh, you know, you you weren't subject to this kind of editorial oversight. Yeah, exactly. I mean, first of all, you know, I think there's a lot of jealousy and resentment, petty, bitter resentments in journalism, like there is in a lot of professions. But I think it's particularly acute in journalism. I've noticed it many times before. So, of course, there are a lot of journalists who have shitty jobs and, and work under terrible conditions, and that's really true. And I have empathy for them. And so, when they see my ability to you know, have the leverage to negotiate this special arrangement, which I have negotiated and I realize is rare for the the field, they kind of feel angry about it. Like, why should he get to publish without being edited when he wants to? And, and I'm constantly having to negotiate with my editor over what I can and can't say. And that may be true. Like, there may be a lot of journalists who only work well with editors or who need to be edited all the time. But as you pointed out, this has never happened to me in 15 years of writing before, not at Salon, not at The Guardian, and never at The Intercept until now. And I feel like it's worked out pretty well for me. I've been doing this for 15 years. I've never had a story retracted. I've never even had a major correction. I've broken a lot of big stories. I've had a lot of impact with my journalism. Um, I have a big audience that has always grown inexorably. So apparently people like the writing even when it's not being edited or maybe because of that. And, you know, I think that, you know, for me, if, if, if it were the case that I was always being edited and then suddenly I started complaining that being edited is censorship, I would understand this grievance, but that has never been how I've worked. As you point out, the only exceptions are, if I'm doing some very original complex reporting, like in the Snowden reporting, in the Brazil expose we did last year, I did work with uh, editors. It was my call under my contract. That's the arrangement is if I think there's either legal liability possible for the outlet, I have to ask for a legal review. If I think that it's beneficial for my journalism, I ask for uh, to work with editors, which I've done in the past. But an article like this would never have generated editorial scrutiny had it not been for the fact that it was going to be extremely controversial because it was coming shortly before an election that um, all the editors at The Intercept were highly invested in, in terms of the outcome. And it wasn't like anybody thought, this is, I think, the, the other confusion part is, it wasn't like anyone really thought that my article was going to sway the outcome of the election, right? Like in order to do that, you have to really produce something extraordinary. And my article re really was just kind of a recap. It was like my own analysis of, the reporting that had been done as opposed to original reporting. So they weren't, nobody thought, including me, obviously, that it was going to make the difference in the election. 
What they were really petrified of was that in 2016, we were one of the outlets along with the New York Times and a few others that did a lot of reporting, meaning we did our jobs, about the highly relevant emails that were published by WikiLeaks that showed high-level corruption of the DNC, cheating by the DNC and the primary between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, and that showed other aspects of Hillary Clinton's behavior, like her speeches to Goldman Sachs that she was trying to conceal. And because of that reporting, starting basically from election night in 2016, when Trump won for the next four years, all we heard both internally, but externally is, oh, you behave poorly. You're responsible for Trump's victory because you did this reporting on Hillary's emails. And they were petrified that had I published this article, they would spend another four years hearing from their friends and their colleagues and people at the New York Times and on Twitter, oh, look, you did it again. Either if Trump won, you helped Trump win again, or you tried to help Trump win by publishing this article about Biden. And if you're a journalist who's petrified of what people are saying about you because you've done reporting, you should go pick another field of work. Um, so, so that's one thing, you know, it was just, it was, it kind of like, you know, disgusted me and, and had they... Um, simply honored the standard way that we worked, which was by letting me publish these kinds of articles without editorial scrutiny, no one would have really bothered with it. It wouldn't have really been a problem. But the reality is, you know, um, the Intercept has become this outlet over the years, the last few years, that was, is kind of the kind of outlet that I created the Intercept to counteract and to undermine and subvert. It frequently quotes intelligence officials anonymously with no evidence, including a week before my article that I wanted to publish. The Intercept published a bullshit article claiming that former CIA officials like John Brennan and James Clapper and Michael Hayden claimed that the Hunter Biden laptop materials were Russian disinformation, which turned out to be totally false, but The Intercept published it. So had The Intercept been this publication that had very rigorous, lofty editorial standards that they were simply applying to me because that's what they believed in, I could have even swallowed it more. But the reality is if you want to publish something at The Intercept that aggrandizes liberal preconceptions or flatters left liberal uh, ideological goals, you can publish anything you want. There's no editorial standards applied. It was very specific, very unique, and very deliberate because of what I was writing when I was writing it. And that's why it was censorship. Not because I think being edited is inherently censorious, but because the motives with which it was being done and the way in which it was being done was all about the perspective I was voicing and not about anything concerning editorial standards. Yeah. So, so that's, so that's worth like um, just kind of nailing in before we move on to broader topics, because um, if what we're talking about a lot of times when we talk about censorship is, is not, you know, of course, government censorship uh, is one thing, but very often that's not what we're talking about. Uh, if you have, you know, I mean, look, even if you have like a private university uh, that doesn't allow, you know, speaker, you know, students to bring in certain speakers, there's no issue of government censorship or the First Amendment there. But I think people would naturally refer to that as censorship. So uh, what we mean by censorship in a lot of context is obstacles to the free flow of information or ideas that we consider to be illegitimate. And what's illegitimate uh, depends to a certain extent on context. Um, I think that, I mean, look, I, I write for Jacobin. It's a publication that exists to promote a certain political point of view. Uh, if there's editorial, you know, direction that uh, that has to do with that, um, you know, with, with the, the political point of view being promoted, that, you know, that doesn't strike me as illegitimate as part of the nature of it, you know. And, and similarly, you have publications like, you know, the National Review on the right or whatever that, that exists 
to support that. There are other kinds of publications that uh, are supposed to be more uh, neutral referees. And there's The Intercept, which, as you say, you founded uh, specifically uh, to uh, to let journalists uh, pursue the stories they want to pursue and to uh, and and to give their commentary in a relatively unfiltered way. And uh, and and I think I you know you heard you say that this is even like spelled out in your contract, uh, your employment contract there that they wouldn't do this. Uh, and they did this for the first time in 15 years, specifically because of the story about Hunter Biden, which um, you know even if. Nobody there is foolish enough to believe that there are swing voters in Wisconsin who are uh, hanging on every word that's published in The Intercept to, you know, to see what they think about this story, to decide whether to vote for, for Biden or Trump. Uh, you know, there, there's this obvious pressure uh, not, to, uh, not to be seen uh, as you know, trying to help Trump win. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's something that's also obviously a, a story that in general, um, you know, the the media class was very concerned about. I mean, uh, that, you know, they Twitter uh, famously went as far as to stop people at one point from even DMing each other. Uh, the, uh, the link to the story, which is, which is really extreme and disturbing for reaction. Uh, and so, so in context, it seems like there are some pretty clear political motives. Uh, certainly the motives can't be editorial. That's, that's not, that doesn't make sense on its face considering both the prior arrangements being upended and also the fact that if you if you people read the email right, which they can on your Substack, uh, then uh, the uh, the objections that were being made weren't um, you know weren't objections on matters of uh, of fact. Uh, you know they they were objections about uh, interpretation of the facts, uh, and that seems like precisely the sort of thing that under this contract, under the arrangement that had been honored before, and under the mission statement of the organization that seems like the sort of thing that they particularly would not uh we're not supposed to interfere with uh so and, and i guess they i guess before we completely move on from this just just one one issue that i think is worth highlighting is that what you think about the election should be a slightly separate issue from what you think what you think about like the role of journalists or what sorts of stories you know should be pursued uh, by journalists, or at least I certainly think so, right? That like, uh, like I'm somebody who did uh, argue for, um, you know, leftists in swing states, at least holding their noses and uh, and voting uh, and voting for Biden for various reasons having to do with the National Labor Relations Board and other things. Uh, but I'd like to think that we can make that, you know, I mean, I don't know if you agree with that or not, right? Uh, but I have a, but I'd like to think that whatever somebody makes of that issue, that they can make their case that one, they can make their case honestly, right? That they, they don't have to actually um, like try to hide information about uh, the pros and cons of, of giving candidates in order to make a case about how people should vote. Uh, that, you know, if, I mean, like worst case, like you could act like, you know, French socialists and communists who, who voted for Macron to stop uh, Marie Le Pen from coming in. Uh, but uh, would, um you know, but like would even talk about doing things like wearing rubber gloves uh, to the polls. Uh, but two, even if you do think that, oh, uh, this is bad, you should make some kind of pragmatic trade-off here. You should try to minimize this this information that, that makes the Biden family look corrupt because the election, you know, even if you think that political strategists should make that calculation, surely that isn't or at least shouldn't be the role of journalists. 
Yeah, there's a, several interesting points in in what you just raised. And so let me start with the question of censorship and free speech, which is oh. a extremely important topic to me, always has been, not just as in my work as a journalist, but even before that as a lawyer. Obviously, the Constitution, when it guarantees free speech, is only guaranteeing the right to be free of state or official censorship. But we clearly have a broader meaning when we talk about free speech. It's been a not just a legal concept, but one of values. You know, it stems from the Enlightenment when the idea was that no institution, whether the Catholic Church or the monarch, ought to have uh, this place where it resides beyond ever being challenged or questioned. So free speech wasn't originally conceived of as a constitutional dogma or legal doctrine, but as a societal value. And one of the things that I did find so odd, because that day when Twitter was barring you from even posting a link to an article by the New York Post, the oldest newspaper in the country, the fourth largest one, yes, it's a tabloid owned by Murdoch with right-wing politics, but it's actually a real newspaper with reporters and stories broken. It's not some fake news site that was created three months ago on Facebook. Um, it, was just, it was stunning. And when then Facebook dispatched a former Democratic Party operative to announce that it too would algorithmically suppress the story. It was a kind of big-footed censorship by the Silicon Valley overlords who reside outside of democratic accountability, let alone constitutional constraints. And I found it so bizarre, as you've alluded to, that leftists started sounding like Cato Institute scholars or Koch brother libertarians when they were saying this is a private institution. They have the right to do whatever they want. This isn't about, okay. First of all, let's imagine that tomorrow, Google, Facebook, and Twitter, all private corporations not regulated by the, the, the Constitution, hold a joint press conference and say the following. Anybody who criticizes Donald Trump and the Republican Party shall be banned instantly, and Google will not list any articles or websites containing criticism of the Republican Party. Um, only criticisms of Democrats and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris shall be allowed. Would anybody have any doubt understanding why free speech values have been implicated, even if the Constitution itself hasn't been violated because those are private actors? I sincerely doubt it. Because as you point out, free speech means the free flow of information, not just the state's interference with it. There's another ideological aspect to that, though, which is the question of monopoly power, which has always been extremely important in left politics going back more than a century. Two months ago, two, just two months, the Democratic-controlled House Committee on Antitrust, I forget the full name, Antitrust, Trust, Monopolies, whatever, issued a huge report that concluded that four tech companies, including Google, Amazon, and Facebook, particularly Facebook, are monopolies. They have monopoly power and therefore ought to be regulated by the state, either broken up or treated as a trust the way water and electricity companies are treated as utilities as part of the public trust. So that was the other bizarre thing of leftists saying, oh, leave Facebook and Twitter alone. They can do whatever they want. Aside from the fact that they wouldn't accept that or think that way if it were the reverse, if some, imagine if the New York Times link to 
you know, links to the New York Times reporting on Trump's tax returns have been blocked, people would flip out. Um, but it's also the case that these companies are not just any other private companies. They have massive power in the marketplace of ideas. And therefore, what they do is our concern in terms of free speech. And I just want to touch on the question of journalism and, our, and its role, yeah. because I think it's a really interesting one that you raised. I mean, I get that there are people who are very vested in the outcome of the election who believe that Trump is this unique fascist threat and that we have to do everything and anything possible to defeat him. And therefore I shouldn't be, or nobody should be reporting negatively on Biden in the days up to the election. And I get that opinion. Um, you know, the person who has influenced me most intellectually in the world and someone who I regard as one of my closest friends, Noam Chomsky has spent, you know, nine months saying that. Um, and I've had disagreements with him publicly and privately, but I completely respect that view. And like, I think one of the things that the left needs to learn how to do better is have these kind of disagreements without treating them like they're heresy or blasphemy or things that, deserve, you know, people deserve to be expelled from good left-wing discourse the minute they diverge from whatever consensus there is. But the issue of the role of journalism that you raise is a really important one. And it's one I thought a lot about. So just, let me just leave you with this um, yeah. on this question. So in 2018, Jair Bolsonaro, who I regard as a actual fascist with unlike Trump with the capacity to implement that vision, somebody attacked my family many times, including before he was inaugurated. And then of course, tried to imprison me at the beginning of this year in 2018 on the campaign trail, he was stabbed by this kind of lone actor who was psychologically disturbed. And he came very close to dying. Had he got to the emergency room three minutes later, he would have bled out from the wound. So imagine you're the ER doctor who's on duty when Bolsonaro is brought in and you believe very strongly that Bolsonaro is a fascist who will try and end Brazilian democracy, will harm a lot of people, maybe kill them if he survives and then win. So you have two choices. You can either intervene medically to try and save Bolsonaro's life by acting as an ER doctor, or you can decide that his life is not worthwhile to save, that it's, the world would be better off if he were to die, and you could purposely let him pass away. I don't think anyone wants doctors arrogating unto themselves that calculus, because that's not the role of a doctor. In order to have a healthy society, you need to have doctors have the, the view my role is simple. It's to save all lives, period, not to decide who lives and who should die. That's a decision way beyond my can. And if doctors started doing that, even if they did it in a way that you liked, like letting Bolsonaro die, that would be really menacing for the society. That's how I see journalism. If I want to work for Joe Biden, I should go work for the DNC or the Biden campaign or an activist group or whatever. But if I want to do journalism, I'm undertaking the obligation, like the doctor undertakes the obligation to save all lives, to publish all information that I think the public has the right to know about powerful political actors, including Joe Biden, including Democrats, even if it's before the election, and then let other people say, his campaign, his lawyers, his, you know, surrogates, whatever, oh, this evidence is not relevant compared to the Trump corruption scandals, it's insignificant, whatever they want to say. But to ask journalists to corrupt their own role, to pervert journalism and convert it into shilling or being spokespeople for a political party or a presidential campaign. If you're on the one hand claiming that you're worried about democracy and democratic values that Trump is threatening, but on the other advocating that model of journalism, there's a huge antagonism there because journalists who start manipulating public opinion instead of informing the public 
are themselves threatening democracy in really fundamental ways. And it's just something I don't believe in. Yeah, no, that, that makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, sh- I should say, by the way, to clarify, I, I don't actually uh, quite agree with the uh, the Chomsky position. I don't think Trump's a fascist. I just, you know, I, I think that the uh, I think that the differences between, you know, a right wing Republican who do things like appoint union busters to the National Labor Relations Board and um, and a mediocre, shitty centrist Democrat uh, who who at least wouldn't do that, right? You know, are, are things that do make a difference to me. Uh, but but I. I think that since you mentioned uh, you mentioned Chomsky, right? And you, you said he was he was greatest influence on on you. You you mentioned uh, uh, Bolsonaro uh, and the uh, the threats uh, that that he's made uh, in the past and continuing against you and your family. Uh, I, I believe uh, your uh, your husband David is a uh, is a congressman uh, in Brazil uh, and and is a member of a of a small uh, socialist party. Uh, and uh, and and all of this makes it kind of funny to me because uh, a, an idea that that I that I've I've seen a lot, especially in the last week uh, since you left the uh, the Intercept, is oh, uh, Glenn Greenwald is uh, is moving to the right, uh, and uh, and and he's he's like he's like becoming some sort of right winger, crypto right winger. I've seen people like compare you to to Christopher Hitchens, you know, as as, as somebody who who started out, you know, on, on the left. Uh, and uh, and and became a right winger, or actually, you know, the most extreme example I saw. Uh, don't want to speak ill of the person who who said this particularly, but I, I think it says something about the a lot of what's floating around about this subject. Uh, was somebody who I think reacting to some of your concerns about uh, about free speech uh, and and also your your willingness to uh, to go on Fox News. Uh, you know, sort of said, oh, so, you know, so he's kind of like becoming like one of these like, um, like IDW people, like, like intellectual dark web, which, which I thought was, was very funny because, um, you know, certainly I remember reading when you used to uh, very fiercely attack uh, Sam Harris, who, who actually is uh, in that group. Uh, and, um, and the, the time I, I see your name most often is uh, when I'm looking back at my, uh, my bookshelf and you are the, uh, the top quote, at the on the front cover uh, of of my late friend Michael Brooks' book uh, Against the Web, which uh, which is uh, framed as a critique of those same people. Uh, so so, what do you make of this narrative that uh, that that you somehow moved to the right or becoming a right winger on some sort of Christopher Hitchens like like trajectory? I mean, I'm not. I, I mean, I don't necessarily like. You know, if you don't want to dignify the actual substance of that, that's fine. But like, but like, why do people think things like this? Why, 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 how have we gotten to a place where this is the sort of hair trigger accusation that people make in these situations? Yeah, so I, I, I think it's an interesting question. Um, I think the short answer for me is that we are stripping politics out of our politics. So... In the case of Christopher Hitchens, for example, I do think he made a shift to the right. He made a hard turn to the right. Now, why do I think that? It wasn't because he went on Fox News, which says nothing about his ideology, right? There's nothing ideological about doing that. There might be a judgment about who you think you should speak to and, and not, or a strategic choice about how you get heard or don't. There's nothing ideological about that, right? Like ideology has a meaning. It means your view about the relationship between the government 
and the citizenry, the politics that the state ought to adopt, the kinds of economic and foreign policies that you believe are just or unjust. And in the case of Christopher Hitchens, the reason a lot of people said, including me, that he made a hard turn through the right is because he started advocating things that were clearly a byproduct of right-wing ideological outlook, like invading Iraq in order to change its government or defending the war on terror and imperialism in general and heralding it as some kind of a noble and benevolent uh, gesture toward the world to improve people and for their own good, bomb their countries and change their governments, which has long traditionally been a right-wing ideology, an ideology with which I have vehemently disagreed. So when Christopher Hitchens started, when people started saying that Christopher Hitchens had moved to the right or made a conversion to the right, it wasn't because of the people that he was like talking to or hanging out with He's, or anything like that. It was much more substance than that. It was the views that he started advocating. What views have I started advocating that are different than the views I've always advocated since I became a journalist? What right-wing views do I hold? None, none. Um, you know, I think that what has happened is that in a lot of ways, left politics has changed in the United States. Um, and uh, so, for example, I think that free speech, which always was a left-wing value, I mean, it came out of like Jewish leftism and like the kind of like left-wing Jewish politics that came from the end of World War One, the dissent over the involvement of the U.S. in World War One, the attempt to criminalize that with the Espionage Act, and then extending into the fifties and McCarthy McCarthy uh, repression. And free speech maximalism was always a value of left-wing politics. It was almost all Jews that were composed the ACLU, the donors, the lawyers, the people who were the activists. And, I mean, if you go back and look at who was marching in the 60s in favor of free speech in Berkeley and elsewhere, it was all leftists. And censorship was found on the right. I mean, that was what the moral majority wanted. It was what, you know, people tried to do with films and with records. And the left was indignant over that stuff. So when I advocate free speech... Something I've always advocated. It may be that it now seems like a little bit of a right-wing ideology, but that's not because I change. It's because the left has kind of morphed into a movement that has increasingly adopted authoritarian strains, which I disagree with. And I know you wrote a book on that and have talked about that as well. And I, Michael did a, a lot as well. I was concerned about that very same thing, those incursions into core left-wing values when it comes to individual liberties. So I think, you know, the reason... One of the problem is, is that when I say politics is being stripped out of our politics, what I mean by that is now it's kind of like being on the left or being on the right has nothing to do with ideology anymore. It's kind of like a tribal signifier. So what shows do you go on? Do you go on with Chris Hayes and like democracy now? And I do go on democracy now quite a bit. Or do you go on, you know, Fox News and Tucker Carlson and um, Sagar and Jetty and Rising and the, you know, it's like a very kind of superficial middle school assessment of the people with whom you're communicating and the strategic choices you're making, rather than what it should be about, which is about politics and ideology. So I think that's part of it. And then I also think that there ends up being this kind of um, these litmus tests of things that you're supposed to affirm in order to prove which tribe you're a member of. And obviously social media exacerbates this greatly because it has so much to do with constant signaling of what side you're on, which group you're a part of, whether you're a part of an in-group or you're in the out-group. And so things like Trump is a fascist, Trump is a unique evil, all of those sorts of things um, are supposed to be left-wing 
values, even though I don't see any ideology in that either. That's just a question of how you view history. I think Bush and Cheney are at least as bad as anything Trump did and probably worse, which you can argue with as a judgment, but it's not a left, a right wing judgment to say that George Bush and Dick Cheney committed more evil in the world than Donald Trump did. Um, And then, you know, same thing, a lot of it had to do with Russiagate where like affirming that Donald Trump colluded with the Kremlin you know, was supposed to be something you were required to affirm in order to stay in good standing on the left. And I, to me, that was also never an ideological question. It was an evidentiary one. Do you see evidence to support the claims of the CIA and the intelligence community that that happened? Journalistically, I just didn't. Um, and I also found that kind of odd because claims about Kremlin infiltration and Americans collaborating with the Russians, that's just something as a leftist, someone vested in left-wing political tradition, I repel from, not, you know, feel comfortable with. Um, But either way, I think that's the problem is that so many of these labels. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, I remember the first time I heard it was the Hillary Clinton campaign in mid-2016 released a creepy video with, like, pictures of, you know, the Red Square and, and the Basilica and, you know, this kind of, like, McCarthy voice saying, what does Donald Trump have in common with the Russian government? What are they doing in bed together? And it just instinctively seemed McCarthy to me Um, from something out of the cold war, like a bad cold war film. Right. So I just, I think that like, if we're going to talk about left and right, we need to make certain that there's at least a touchstone to something serious and political and ideological and not like tribal or group based. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and also, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I think they're obviously the extremely ugly historical associations. Uh, and but also, I mean, I, I guess I just think, you know, maybe I'm just too paranoid. But I mean, like, since this stuff started, I've, I've thought that um, that it just seems inevitable that the people who if you normalize these kinds of accusations, the people being uh, being Russian agents or, you know, uh, or or unwitting agents of Russian influence, or you know, like that. That's this is that this is like really something you can use to uh, take somebody down politically. It always just seemed obvious to me that the people who are long term going to be the biggest victims. Of well, and they you they 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 used it against Sanders, which was so predictable when he first ran in 2016. The right was saying things like. Why did you honeymoon in Moscow? And what is your relationship with the Soviet Union? Why did you go to Cuba when you were the mayor of Burlington? Why did you go praise the Sandinistas after you got back? So they were red baiting him in 2016. But then the Democrats started doing it as well, both from that like Cold War perspective of why do you love Castro? Why do you love the Sandinistas? But then also the kind of Cold War War 2.0. Remember after he won Nevada, somebody leaked to the Washington Post the claim that the Bernie Sanders campaign had been briefed by the CIA, that the Russians were trying to help his campaign. So suddenly at the peak of his ascent, they suddenly took this Russiagate script, which is so predictable and so many of us were warning about, which to Sanders blame he had been affirming himself, and it got deployed against him in the most predictable way possible, saying now the Russians want Bernie Sanders to win. Yeah, and and again, I I think that if like the people who seem to be, um, who I would imagine long term are are going to be most likely to be accused of being Russian agents would presumably be people who are the most critical of American foreign policy. Uh, you know, if if there was, um, you know, like if one of these uh, kind of proxy war uh, conflicts between the United States and Russia. 
uh, you know, Ukraine, whatever, you know, like, like, like if, if that ever got to some crazy point uh, where, where there were like American ground troops, you know, in, involved in that, uh, then certainly there would be very, I mean, actually at this point it would be impossible to imagine uh, people who, who are opposed to it, not being accused of, uh, of being uh, Russian agents or Russian dupes, which might happen anyway, just in the, in the course of things like that's how, that's how defenders of imperialism tend to work. But, um, but now it's, it's been given all of this credibility because there have been years and years of people in, um, you know, both, both sort of centrist, like in the MSNBC sphere, uh, but also, uh, also people in various forms of progressive media to the left of that, uh, who have, who have given it, uh, who have given it credit and, and, and credence and, and even really, um, treated not being on board with that narrative, as like prima facie evidence of um, of uh, of having like unsavory motives of some kind, right? And you know, I think it, one of the things I think is interesting is, and that I do worry about as well is we were talking before about this kind of tendency to judge left and right not based on ideology or politics, but on associations. I've always found it very strange that over the last four years, if you are on the side of the Trump administration when it comes to Russiagate or other controversies that aren't really ideological, but evidentiary, or if you go on Tucker Carlson or Fox news or whatever, that's indicia that you are now on the right. But if you agree with David from and Bill Crystal and the CIA and, you know, Michael Hayden, George Bush's former CIA and NSA chief, that's somehow totally fine. That's just like a coincidence of, you know, finding yourself on the same side. And I think there's been insufficient effort devoted to the question of why all those neocon scumbags and like Bush Cheney goons are so vehemently and desperately devoted to destroying the Trump presidency you can say part of it is personal. They got displaced in their, you know, kind of consultancy gigs by this outsider who didn't want to hire Steve Schmidt or Rick Wilson or whatever. You can say that, well, he just kind of stumbled into a questioning of Cold War NATO pieties or Israel or whatever. But there has to be some reason, right, why those people who have done more harm than anyone over the last 30 years in American politics suddenly have found their most devoted enemy in Donald Trump and the Trump presidency. And before people jump into bed with them, I think there ought to be some interrogation about why he has alienated those kinds of factions. Yeah. And it's interesting because, because Trump has done some of the things that they, that they would want, uh, presumably Uh, he, um, you know, he sold heavy weaponry uh, to uh, to Ukraine, uh, which which Obama didn't do. It's as hard as this is to remember. Uh, it used to be a Republican talking point that uh, that Obama was too soft on Russia. Uh, he um, he he doubled uh, effectively. Uh, they, the you know, I mean, it depends on how you measure it, but he greatly increased the rate of drone strikes in Yemen. Uh, so, so he he has done some of the things uh, that that they want. Yeah, he bombed the shit out of out of out of Iraq and Syria. He moved the 
uh, embassy to Jerusalem. He was much more belligerent to Iran, things that neocons would love. You're absolutely right. So the question then remains, why do they hate Trump so much? And I think there's been very, and, and like the other problem, you know, that I think has the, that relatedly is that now that neocons and Bushini operatives are so embedded in the Democratic Party. I mean, I've seen this delusional claim that, oh, the Democrats are just using them for their votes. And once the election's over, they're going to no. that's true of the Democrats and the left. Right. The Democrats use the left for their votes. And once the election is over, there'll be no more union or coalition between Democrats and the left. Those other people are going to exercise a lot of influence in this new administration, in part because it's been a longstanding Democratic centrist establishment dream to be able to merge with these kinds of Republicans. You know, that's why today there was a, like a potential cabinet list release by the Biden camp to political. I think it was. And there's a couple of Republicans being actively considered, including Meg Whitman for fucking commerce. Right. But there's no corresponding leftist who's like going to be the part the secretary of labor, um, notwithstanding your accurate, you know, assessment that there'll be better appointees on like the sub cabinet level. Um, so I think that that's the other question is there's been not enough questioning about what are the long-term effects of this new coalition of Bush Cheney operatives, neocons, Silicon Valley, Wall Street, the large corporate media, and the Democratic Party. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, and that's, that's very disturbing. Uh, in the last few minutes that, that I have with you, uh, since you, you alluded to this earlier, and, and I do want to drill into it just a little bit because I saw that you wrote something uh, just today or yesterday for, for your Substack about it, um, which everybody should go subscribe to, uh, you, uh, you, you kind of alluded to, to this claim that the, um, you know, the Trump admitted that the, um, the Bush administration uh, objectively uh, committed worse crimes and, and, and had a worse effect uh, on the world uh, than the, the Trump administration, which um, Again, as you say, like the sort of partisan valence of how people hear that now is kind of funny because we're, we're comparing two Republicans. Uh, but, uh, but, but I guess maybe you could, if you could speak to that just, just a little bit, right? So like the obvious reason to think that that's true or the, maybe the biggest, the biggest piece of evidence that that would be true, I would think, uh, would be uh, the starting the wars uh, in, in Afghanistan uh, and, and Iraq, uh, you know, kind of punching that hole in the Middle East that's continued to lead to bloodshed and chaos uh, ever since then. Uh, but but what does the rest of the evidence for that claim look like? Yeah, and like killing up upwards of a million people in Iraq. You know, just so before the debate even starts, I just want to hear somebody who disputes this argument that Bush and Cheney, and what I was really writing about was the idea that Trump is some singular unprecedented evil, right? Like never before seen so that like everyone who worked for the Trump administration should be permanently ostracized, but people who work for Bush and Cheney or even Obama should be welcomed in decent company, give them NBC shows like they have, like Nicole Wallace and Joe Scarborough, who was a big Bush Cheney supporter. And that's all fine. Nicole Wallace was the actual propagandist, like the communications director of the Bush Cheney 2004 reelection campaign while the Iraq war was raging and then served as the communication director of the Bush and they love her. She, she's one of the most popular MSNBC hosts, um, you know, in the whole litany of journalists who helped sell that war, like just that war alone, that killed upwards of a million people that was justified based on lies um, that was disseminated and laundered through the media that, as you said, created huge instability in, in the Middle East. And as Tony Blair even admitted, 
gave rise to ISIS. Like whatever metric you want to use to evaluate that and compare it in terms of like harm done, lies deployed, uh, instability engendered. What did Donald Trump do that's even in the same universe, morally or geostrategically, than that? What, what it, like, how do you even begin to make the case? And then, you know, you start adding the stuff on that I began writing about to denounce the implementation of a worldwide torture regime and the legalization of torture through the, 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 the Bush Justice Department, the execution of a global kidnapping policy called rendition where people like Muslim clerics and the like were abducted off the streets of Milan and, and, and Hamburg and shipped to Egypt and Syria to be tortured on purpose by the most despotic regimes to try and extract information from them. Um, the creation of a due process free prison in the middle of the Atlantic ocean called Guantanamo where 20 years later, almost people still are imprisoned in cages without ever having been tried of crimes before. And then domestically, you look at things like hurricane Katrina, which the liberal consensus held happened or the aftermath did because George Bush in the words of Kanye West doesn't care about black people and the constant lies that were told and the bigotry deployed with anti-gay referendum put on the ballot by Karl Rove to energize evangelical voters and the slaughter of innocent Muslims all over the world, when you start piling up that body count and that, you know, mountain of radical executive power theories, much of which was continued and even expanded by the Obama administration with drones and assassinations of American citizens and the like, to say nothing of the 2008 financial crisis that happened under Bush's watch and then under Obama, the actions were taken to, bail out Wall Street and let homeowners be foreclosed by the hundreds of thousands despite a fund that sat untouched to salvage their mortgages under Tim Geithner and Larry Summers, you know, guru-like wisdom. What are we seeing in the Trump ledger that even equals that, let alone so wildly exceeds it that we ought to regard Trump as this singular evil? I, I don't, you know, whatever it is that you can count, you can point at like kids in cages or the coronavirus um, or, you know, like his racist rhetoric and all of that finds comparable examples in the pre presidents that preceded him. And then there's a lot that preceded him that I don't think you find comparable examples of. And so I find this whole historical revisionism of saying that Trump is a fascist dictator, that he's a Nazi-like figure, that he's never, never before seen evil, to be very self-serving because the people who propagated that are the same ones who demanded that this narrative be used to cleanse uh, and provide absolution for all of their own crimes and all of their, all of their sins, as well as propagandizing a whole generation of people who just began paying attention to politics because of their age, because of fear of Trump, who now believe more than ever in the myth of American exceptionalism, that before Trump, presidents had always been noble and benevolent, that the rule of law was always abided by, that the FBI, the CIA, the NSA are trustworthy institutions. So much damage has been done by this narrative that I think it's, and a lot of it has been propped up by liberals and even to some extent the left, not so much the left, but, but certainly liberals, um, that I think it's really worth dismantling because it's not just, you know, inaccurate in a very profound way, but also quite damaging. Yeah, and, and even when it comes to, um, you know, the... Uh, even when it comes to to some of the the somewhat unique um, you know crimes of of the Trump administration, so um, the example you gave 
uh, the child separation policy, uh, kids in cages that, you know, certainly built on things that had happened earlier, including under Obama, but was, was an escalation uh, of, uh, of that war on undocumented immigrants uh, or uh, the, the, uh, the Muslim, uh, the Muslim ban. Uh, you know, these, these are things that, uh, that, I mean, some like part of the, the Bush side of the ledger does need to be Trump uh, because uh, certainly, you know, in terms of, of Trump, the Trump administration's escalations of American brutality towards undocumented immigrants, uh, you know, I mean, ICE uh, was created uh, by the Bush administration, you know, when they, uh, they uh, created the Department of Homeland Security and reorganized, you know, federal agencies uh, around there. Uh, the INS existed before that, but this was certainly a much more beefed up and militarized uh, version of that. Uh, and uh, and also, um, it, it's very hard for me to imagine uh, a candidate who was um, who was fear mongering about Muslims in the way that Trump was planning to ban, you know, every Muslim in the world, like he said he would in 2016. You know, before the watered down versions of the Muslim ban that you know ended up going through. Uh, you know, without the Bush administration's decision uh, to to frame. Um, the 9-11 attacks, uh, not as um, a criminal action by a small group of terrorists, uh, but as this this civilizational threat uh, that, that needed to be responded to with, with a conflict that would be on the level of something like the Cold War. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, if you look at the pre-Trump Republican Party, there's very little that the Trump administration did, that's a deviation from it. And the few examples of those deviations, I don't mean like slight expansions, I mean actual departures, you could actually say are good from a left-wing perspective, like questioning NATO, questioning the war in Iraq, um, even though he was supportive of it, questioning why we're constantly interfering in other countries to change their government. Um, you know, I think it, wanting better relations rather than more belligerence with, with Moscow, in those cases where Trump did radically deviate from Republican doctrine, that generally isn't those things are not considered bad, but, but good. But by and large, I think other than the stylistic parts of Trump's behavior and his tweets, the Trump administration looks to me like a pretty ordinary Republican administration, except that it didn't have the fuel of the 9-11 attacks and the war in terror and the war in Iraq to prop up so many of those abuses and it provoked a lot of resistance largely because of these behavioral things that George Bush and Dick Cheney never encountered. I mean, the press was incredibly anemic under the Bush administration. That's why I started blogging and so many other people did as well. The Democratic Party was incredibly meek. Um, there was not very much citizen marches. There obviously was against the war in Iraq, but not against these broader war on terror abuses. And so a lot of the ability of Bush and Cheney to implement evil was greater. It doesn't mean that George Bush is a worse person than Dick Cheney. It just means the government itself did a lot more damage and a lot more harm. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Uh, I mean, I, I, I am uh, cautiously optimistic, not about the, uh, the Biden administration itself, which I think is, is going to be, um, as you say, you know, these like Lincoln Project kinds of uh, neocon ghouls are going to have huge influence in it. 
it's uh, it's probably going to have a Republican Senate to use as plausible deniability when it doesn't do any of the good stuff uh, that is on the Biden-Harris campaign website. Uh, I think it's going to be awful. Uh, but that I, I think there is a case to be made for optimism about uh, movements from below uh, that uh, that certainly if you look at the Bush administration, when, like you said, after the anti-war movement, uh, there were not a lot of you know people marching in the streets or when they were, it was some asinine nonsense like that John Stewart uh, rally to restore sanity. Uh, but whereas uh, during yeah. the Obama years, uh, we had uh, the beginnings of Black Lives Matter. There was Occupy Wall Street. Uh, there was... Um, there was the Bernie Sanders campaign winning 22 states, uh, none of which is to say that this is somehow like, you know, to the credit of the Obama administration or they did anything to, uh, to spark this. In fact, they did quite a bit to squelch some of these things. Uh, but I guess the case for optimism looks to me like this, and, and maybe we can close on your reaction to this, that, um, that when there is a ostentatiously reactionary right-wing Republican in office, oppositional energy often ends up getting uh, diverted to that person as an individual. Uh, if only we got rid of that terrible smirking cowboy, George W. Bush, everything would be fine. If only we got rid of that horrible Cheeto, everything would be fine. Uh, whereas uh, when, uh, when you have some personally pleasant uh, centrist Democrat like Barack Obama, uh, in office and, and you still have the same dissatisfaction, you know, for, for a lot of the same reasons, uh, then uh, it might be more likely to be channeled to somewhat more systemic issues like police violence with, with BLM uh, or, or like economic inequality uh, with, uh, with Occupy Wall Street, just because it's a little bit harder for people to tell themselves that, oh, the problem is all about this one individual and all problems will be solved by getting rid of him. Yeah, you know, I I, I am, am very interested, obviously, in what the post-Trump landscape looks like. I do base a lot of my expectations on what I witnessed personally and went through when I watched the very high levels of anti-war and pro-civil liberties and anti-corporatist fervor under George Bush and Dick Cheney all but disappear upon the inauguration of Barack Obama. Not entirely. There were some people who kept it up, but certainly a huge chunk of it was co-opted and annexed, and it's kind of morphed into Democratic Party uh, cheerleading. And it might be that that was because Obama was such a singularly exciting figure who people, including me, believed was going to do a lot more good than he actually ended up doing. Whereas Biden doesn't really inspire that in anybody, um, really. So hopefully the chances are lower. But what I worry about is the following, which is that narrative that we were discussing a few minutes ago, that Trump is a singular evil, that he's kind of like a Hitler figure, that there's this like movement behind him that's fascist and white supremacist, does domestic terrorism, wants to implement coups. That narrative has been so beneficial to so many people, media outlets profiting from it, people's careers being launched because of it, their reputations being rehabilitated, agencies being able to posture as defenders of the good in a convincing way to a lot of people that I really can't see that narrative just being jettisoned so easily. People are going to want to cling to it. And the way they're going to cling to it is by saying that even though Trump's gone, there's still these huge pockets of white supremacist, fascist militias and, you know, plotters of violence and 
getting ready to take over the Senate or the House in 2022, and then the White House in 2024, such that any criticism of Biden and Harris basically constitutes siding with fascism. That maybe fascism isn't in the White House anymore, but it hasn't gone away. I think it's going to be very persuasive to a lot of people. Um, They're going to be hearing that from a lot of the media outlets they trust, a lot of the writers they believe in. And I'm not so sure that there's going to be this kind of restoration of the role of the left, which is criticizing the Democratic Party from the left. I think a lot of people on the left are going to be persuaded that they have an ongoing moral duty to more or less stay behind the Democratic Party because any attempt to weaken it is to strengthen the far worse fascists. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there will be, uh, I'm sure we'll, you know, there will be some of that. I, I, I think, I hope uh, it's a, uh, it's an open question uh, how, uh, how successful those cooptation strategies are. I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm like the thing that makes me optimistic, to the extent that I am, I can summon up any optimism uh, is that uh, we didn't have uh, that when Obama came to, to office, like the, uh, the closest thing there was, uh, you know, there were lots of people who were making lots of noise about all the issues that, that you just mentioned. Right. But, uh, but there, there wasn't anything that really conceived of itself as an alternative to the democratic establishment, I think in quite the same way as you have now with, um, you know, DSA and the squad, which is very imperfect, but I'm glad it's there. Uh, and, uh, and, and what's left of, of the Bernie movement. But, uh, but I, I guess we'll just have to see uh, if that actually does all manage to, to assert itself as anything and, and, and keep developing uh, during the, uh, the Biden years uh, or, uh, or if it's just all kind of um, swept up into this, this constant uh, incentive to, uh, you know, oh, how can you criticize the, uh, how can you criticize the Biden administration when we're only six months away from the midterm elections or don't you know what's going on in this state, uh, which I'm sure will be a, a constant voice in the other direction. Yeah, I hope you're right. Um, I hope, uh, you know, that that optimism is is warranted. I'm sure there will be some people who continue to do that. And the question just becomes how many. Fair enough. Uh, Thanks, Glad. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was great talking to you, Ben. Keep up the great work. Um, I'm a fan of what you're doing. So I appreciate you inviting me on. All right. right. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, that was uh, Glenn Greenwald, formerly of The Intercept. Uh, you can read his work now uh, at uh, greenwald.substack.com. Uh, and uh, before that, uh, spoke to uh, David Griscom uh, for our Outlaws and Revolutionary segment that usually comes at the end, but the way the time worked out today. Uh, we had to do that a little bit earlier. Uh, and before that, uh, Matt, uh, Matt Chrisman, Uh, who is a pleasure to talk to, uh, as always. Uh, Before I sign off today, I do want to uh, just let you guys know about a few things uh, that are uh, are coming up. Um, So uh, one of them uh, is, um, so I'm doing this debate uh, with um, Kay Fellows about abortion rights uh, at uh, uh, Modern Debate. uh, And as always, that's going to be reposted on my YouTube channel, I think probably we're going to do that on Tuesday, uh, repost it there, uh, premiere it there on the YouTube channel. Uh, there, um, 
Also, uh, we are starting this month uh, to do these uh, monthly uh, bonus episodes uh, recapping my favorite TV show, The Sopranos. Uh, so my co-pilots uh, for those Sopranos bonus episodes are going to be Nando Vila, Wozni, Big Waz, Lombre, uh, and Mike Racine, uh, who, who are all fun and funny and, and intelligent people who I'm really looking forward to uh, chatting about the show with. Uh, so the first one of those is going to be recorded on Tuesday, released sometime shortly thereafter. I still have to figure out the exact schedule there. Uh, also, I uh, wrote a couple of things that you could check out. Uh, one of them uh, was at Current Affairs. It's called uh, Arguing with Glenn Beck. I co-wrote that with uh, Nathan J. Robinson, uh, who's, of course, the editor of Current Affairs and has been a guest on the show. Uh, and... I don't think it's a state secret that I don't always see eye to eye with Nathan on uh, intra-left disputes, uh, but but he's a friend uh, and a comrade and somebody who's writing I've tremendously admired uh, for uh, for years. Uh, you know when when I talk about you know giving them an argument, you know as, as something leftists should do more of. Uh, the exemplars I always think of, or a couple of them, are Glenn Greenwald uh, and Nathan Robinson. So it was a huge honor to write that piece with him. And I think there's a lot of really good stuff in there. There was a trimmed version that was in uh, the print issue of Current Affairs that was released at the end of the summer. But this is the the full uncut thing uh, that includes stuff like uh, our argument about why the idea that we we can influence things by voting with our dollars in a free market uh, is largely nonsensical. Uh, so, uh, so check that out. Uh, that's at the Current Affairs website. It's called Arguing with Glenn Beck. Uh, and also, uh, I've had uh, two things up at Jacobin in the last week. One of them is called Let Everyone Vote, and it's about the obscenely large uh, number of people, uh, possibly more than 31 million on my back-of-the-envelope calculations, who were not able to vote uh, in this election. Uh, so we're talking there about prisoners, uh, 2.3 million uh, people serving in state and federal prisons, and other than state prisoners in uh, Vermont and Maine, uh, then um, in the other 48 states and in the federal prison system, uh, uh, prisoners uh, prisoners aren't allowed to uh, to vote, uh, and uh, that includes millions more who are parolees uh, or who are uh, ex-cons in uh, in states that continue to disenfranchise people who've committed felonies uh, after they get out of prison, uh, and uh, and there are um, between. 10.5 and 12 million uh, people in there who are undocumented immigrants. And I know a lot of people will say, oh, you know, they broke the law. Uh, they're they're you know, in this country illegally. Why should they be allowed to vote in their elections? Uh, which, which I think uh, is, is very uh, harsh and ridiculous considering that we're talking about people uh, who um, are peaceful people moving around from one area to another without permission, uh, but uh, who have, uh, who are often fleeing from uh, really unspeakable levels of poverty, cartel violence, brutality. Uh, and, you know, you can say, oh, well, of course they shouldn't be allowed to vote because they're not citizens, which sounds like an argument, but is actually just an elaborate way of banging at the table and insisting that you like the status quo because citizen just means somebody who's awarded certain legal rights, like the right to vote. And even if you think that uh, it's okay that undocumented immigrants uh, aren't allowed to vote because they're undocumented, uh, that still leaves us with 13.2 million uh, green card holders 
Uh, so these are people who have been living in the United States for at least five years. You have to in order to apply for a green card um, and who uh, are expecting to keep on living in the United States for the long haul. That's what it is. That's what the card is for, a permanent residency. So they have been in the United States for years. They will be in the United States for the foreseeable future. While there, they have to pay American taxes and follow American laws, uh, but they aren't allowed to have uh, a vote and hence a voice uh, in determining who gets to make those laws, uh, which in all of the context we would consider to be a basic human right, uh, the right to democratic self-governance. Uh, we normally think that's not something you have to earn. That's something everybody should have just by virtue of being human. Uh, so, um, and you know, you can get into all kinds of other arguments about the prisoners and whether, you know, breaking the social contract means that you shouldn't be allowed to vote. Uh, and whether that makes sense, even if you ignore the ridiculous idealization of pretending that uh, that anybody who ends up in prison in uh, in under circumstances of drug prohibition, pervasive poverty, and mass incarceration uh, is some sort of horrible evildoer. Uh, but I, obviously, I get into all that in the article. Uh, check that out. And the other one, which uh, which just went up, uh, is uh, is called uh, "No Honeymoon uh, for Joe Biden." Uh, and uh, that one uh, argues that whereas it is good in my view, right? As uh, as I was uh, as I was talking about a bit with uh, with David Griscom, uh, as I was arguing just now to Glenn Greenwald, uh, it is good that Trump lost. Uh, that is that's something that's worthy of celebration. If there were ever a time where the victory of the lesser evil over the greater evil uh, merited busting out a bottle of champagne, this would be it. Uh, considering everything from appointing hardcore union busters to the National Labor Relations Board and uh, turning back the clock on uh, labor law uh, almost to where it was in the 1930s in some ways, uh, to, uh, to banning Muslims, to separating children from their parents, uh, to criminal negligence uh, with the coronavirus. It is a good thing that the Trump is over, but just being less evil than Trump does not mean that you're not an implacable enemy of the working class. Uh, and this is alluded to at various points in the episode today, I argue extensively uh, in, uh, in the article. That's what Biden is. If you look at his record, uh, you look at the record of the Obama-Biden administration, uh, we shouldn't take seriously any of the good stuff that's on his campaign website. Uh, you know, we should, we should expect that he's going to govern like Obama did uh, when Obama did things like expand the drone war and uh, preside over eight years of expansion of the gap between the rich and poor and wage war against teachers unions. Uh, and, and we should be buckled up for that with, with Biden. And we certainly shouldn't, uh, shouldn't give the Biden administration any reprieve from relentless left criticism, any sort of honeymoon period in which we see what they do. We know what they're going to, they're going to do. Uh, they are going to act like uh, Keir Starmer, uh, act has been acting uh, in the UK. We were talking about that in the last episode with the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, and really have any and every interest in crushing that rowdy left flank. So I think we're at war with the democratic establishment, whether we want to be or not. So we might as well want to be. Uh, so again, that that article in uh, Jacobin uh, is called "No Honeymoon uh, for uh, for Joe Biden." Uh, so look forward to the debate on abortion with Kay Fellows. Uh, and uh, the um, and 
uh, the first uh, monthly bonus episode recapping The Sopranos, uh, which if we if we have time, if we get to both of them, we're going to talk about the first two episodes, uh, The Sopranos and 46 Long. Uh, so uh, really looking forward to those. Those should be a lot of fun. Uh, there's a lot more coming up. Uh, if you haven't uh, subscribed to the YouTube channel, you should do that. Uh, it's uh, There's tons of stuff in between episodes, like the debate that I just mentioned, uh, but also there are... Um, there have been a lot of live streams. There are going to be a lot more. We're going to start doing that more regularly. Uh, and, um, and so, um, and so you should subscribe to that. Um, and, uh, should like, uh, this, uh, this video, if you're watching it, uh, if you're watching it on YouTube, it's a small thing, but it actually does make a difference. It actually is helpful. Uh, and if you, uh, if you are in a position to do so, I understand if you're not, trust me, uh, I was an adjunct, uh, until, uh, until last year, there were plenty of months there where a $5 recurring donation would have actually been a problem because things were so tight at the end of the month. But if you are in a position to, for the monthly cost of a milkshake at the 50s Nostalgia Diner in Pulp Fiction, you get early ap- uh, access to every single episode. Um, you, can, you, know, you can watch it live on the unlisted stream while it's being recorded before the, uh, it goes into editing over the weekend. So it can come out in the nice edited version uh, on podcast form and uh, the YouTube premiere on Mondays. Uh, you, um, you also get regular uh, Discord office hours, group voice chats, uh, and, um, uh, which, which have been a lot of fun. We've covered a lot of really interesting territory in those. And uh, you're also going to start getting some patron-exclusive uh, bonus episodes. Still trying to figure that out, but I think uh, might be due to recording one maybe even this week with Jesse Single, so look out for that. Uh, but again, these are all gestures of gratitude. The basic thing is, uh, it's not a subscription service. It's a matter of solidarity and support. If you like what we're doing here, please do consider, uh, supporting it in that way. I do say we on purpose, not me, not if you like what I am doing here, uh, because, uh, like any show like this, this is brought to you, uh, by people that you don't see on camera, uh, who are doing things like video editing and uh, helping with various aspects of the YouTube channel and designing logos. Uh, and I would really like, uh, to be able to pay all those, all those people living wage, uh, to be able to pay all of them at all. Some of them are getting paid. Some of them haven't been able to yet. Uh, ultimately I'd like to be able to pay myself a living wage just out of doing this. So I could, uh, spend my life doing a lot more of this and a lot less teaching. Uh, so, uh, again, uh, if you're in a position to please do consider becoming a patron. Um, and even if you aren't, uh, you know, if you like and subscribe on YouTube, uh, like, and uh, subscribe, uh, you know, rate and review wherever you get podcasts, all of those things really do help. I've been humbled by all the support I've already gotten, how quickly the show has grown and it's very short existence. So um, thank you to, to all of you. Um, take a moment uh, to celebrate the fall of the Trump uh, administration. It is a good thing, despite everything that I've been saying in this episode and everything I say in the Jackman article, you got to celebrate what victories you have. Uh, even if they're very incomplete and complicated ones, or you're not going to get through this. So um, something to keep in mind, but uh, thank all you guys so much for watching or listening. Left is best. Mm-hmm.